0: I would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We'll be reading and considering together verses 17 through the end of the chapter. Let's hear now from God's Word. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Would you pray with me? Our Lord, as we give consideration to the great truth of your word, we acknowledge our need for the work of your Holy Spirit Give us eyes to to see and ears to hear our need for the redemptive work of our Lord. In whose name we pray, amen. Gallup has conducted a monthly poll in America since 2001 in which they ask the open-ended question, what do you think is the most important problem facing our country today? As you can imagine, there are many answers, and you can probably predict the top several answers upon the list, they're of no surprise to us. They include such things as the economy, problems in government, unemployment, federal debt, health care, immigration, education. Of those seven answers, they account for roughly 90% of the responses consistently over the last 10 years since these polls have started. And so if those are our problems as a nation, primarily economic, leadership issues, educational needs, then I suppose the solution is just to get different leaders, create a more stable economy in which there's more money for everyone, or just try to get more laws or better laws upon the books in order to regulate our problems. Nowhere on the list of Gallup's poll is the response, lack of godliness is our biggest problem as a nation. I suppose if Gallup called you, you happen to be one of the lucky few who got that phone call from them some month, and you answered their question, lack of godliness is our biggest problem, your answer would be down at the very bottom of the list under that final category that reads 1% or fewer issues, which are not even mentioned in the report. To care about godliness, to see it as something that's in need, and not just in need, but to see it as the greatest need that we have would be to be labeled amongst the religious fundamentalists. You would be called unenlightened, naive, intolerant, and in fact, you would be seen as part of the problem rather than a solution. If you think that the biggest problem in our nation is the fact that our hearts are far from God and that those hearts need to bow before his lordship and seek grace and mercy that is offered to us in the Lord Jesus, you would be mocked and ridiculed for such an answer. The pressures against godly living in our time are significant. But this is nothing new. The church has faced this really since its inception. The church in Corinth was facing similar pressures in a city that was filled with hedonistic living. Corinth was a city in which Paul had spent roughly 18 months planting a church, ministering to those converts in Christ, and training up new leaders to minister in his absence. But now, some years later, many problems are beginning to creep their way into the church. Ancient Corinth was a very strategic city in the place in which it was located, a, a city filled with trade and commerce, a city of great wealth, a city of religious pluralism, a city that was, at that time in the ancient world, synonymous with wild and indulgent living. And those members of the early church were faced with great temptation temptation to compromise the convictions that they came to believe as they submitted to the truth of the gospel and they faced temptation to compromise their ethical practices some who were members of the church came from a pagan lifestyle and it was very tempting for them to return to that former way of life a life of indulgence and self-gratification I mean, after all, they live in a culture in which they are surrounded by those who are telling them that real wisdom, that real life comes from indulging the desires and simply living for the self. And it is so tempting, of course, to live with self at the center because those immediate rewards in terms of self-gratification are much more rewarding. As we think about Corinth, as we think about the time in which we live, There truly is nothing new under the sun, is there? And so, how important it is for us as God's people to remember who we are in the Lord Jesus. Look back at verses eight and nine that we didn't read, but listen to how Paul speaks of the identity of those who are in Christ. The Lord who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. We are children of the living God, belonging to our faithful one, our Lord, who will keep us to the end. And if he is the faithful one who will keep us, then our calling very simply is to reciprocate that by living a life of faithfulness unto the Lord. Now think for a moment about conversations that you have had with others about the message of the Christian faith. No doubt there have been times in your life in which you have just been overwhelmed by the good news of God's grace to you. You've spent time, perhaps, in public worship with God's people, singing praises to His name and delighting in the truth of His Word. You've spent time on your own reading Scripture and drawing great comfort from the hope and peace of the knowledge of the finished work of the Lord Jesus that by faith alone your sins are forgiven, that you are a recipient of eternal peace with the Lord, that life eternal is yours. The love of God through Christ is overwhelming to you, and you are compelled to share the hope that is yours with another who does not know Him, because you know that it is only through faith in the Lord Jesus that one can be made right with God. It is the only message of truth. And so on the one hand, there is this thing, this... This truth, this body of truth that you seek to understand and that brings you such comfort, such joy, such peace, and such hope, and yet it is rejected and scorned and ridiculed by another whom you seek to share those good news, that good news with. My wife and I were in the Tampa airport last week and saw a guy wearing a t-shirt with a cartoon drawing of Jesus with these words above it. Another sucker born again every minute. Something that is so clear to those of us who are in the Lord Jesus, who've been recipients of His grace, is a marvelous thing. Peace with God, sins forgiven. All that is required is that you acknowledge your need of Him. All that is required is that you humble yourself before Him and place your faith in Christ. How can so many turn away? And not just turn away in indifference. But turn away with hostility and hatred toward the gospel. There was a man who had a, a very thriving practice of psychology as an unbeliever for a number of years, and he confesses this I believed in nothing. I was essentially a nihilist. I had no foundation, no worldview that I based my life upon, and yet people listened to me and did what I told them. But then after coming to faith in Christ, he was convinced of the truth of God's word and sought to point his patience to the objective truth of the gospel. And he says, but no one seemed to care. We've all experienced verse 18 of this passage, haven't we? We've all experienced the reality that the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, and it is the power of God to those who believe. Now, what Paul is assuming here in this passage We could say really his fundamental starting point is the inherent longing in human nature that we all have for wisdom. There's the pursuit of wisdom from a worldly perspective, which we'll come back to in a moment, and then there is God's wisdom that is offered through the message of the cross. Now, wisdom, we could say, is the answer to ultimate questions. Such questions as, where did life originate? What is my purpose upon this earth? How should I live, and why should I live one way and not another? What will happen to me after I die, and how can I be certain to the answer of any of these questions? These are the questions that wisdom seeks to answer. And we could say that wisdom either seeks to answer those questions from below, from sort of delving into the repository of human philosophy and thinking, looking to the self, or wisdom looks above to the Lord to the answers to those questions. And so, if we all have this inherent longing for wisdom, if we all have this longing to answer those ultimate questions of life, there is something that Paul says here that is the dividing line between human wisdom and biblical wisdom. There is something that separates one category of wisdom from another. And what is it? What's well, in verse 18? It is the message of the cross, or the word of the cross. And it's not simply, you see, the historical reality that Jesus lived, that he died, that he rose, and that he ascended into heaven, but the message of the cross is the objective interpretation from on high of what the work of Christ is all about. John Calvin, in commenting on this text, says, Nothing is more absurd in the view of human reason "...than to hear that God has become mortal, that life has been subjected to death, that righteousness has been veiled under the appearance of sin, and that the source of blessing has been made subject to the curse, that by this means men might be redeemed from death and become partakers of a blessed immortality, that they might obtain life, that sin being destroyed, righteousness might reign." and that death and the curse might be swallowed up. And so it is this very thing, this word of the cross of Christ, that polarizes the human race, that acts as a dividing line between those who are recipients of grace and those who remain hardened to the gospel. D.A. Carson points out that every culture in human history, has had a way of classifying, of polarizing people groups. In the ancient world, there were slaves and there were freemen. That was the dividing line. In the Roman Empire, there were those who were Greek speakers and those who were barbarians. There were Roman citizens and then there was everybody else. Various ways of classification. And here in 1 Corinthians 1, we see another polarity it is the cross that is the dividing line between human wisdom and biblical wisdom. And of all of the different polarities that have been created throughout human history and all the different polarities that we might create to separate people groups, the only one of ultimate importance is this. Because this is the only one that will affect you for all of eternity. There are those who are perishing and there are those who are being saved. All other classifications will one day vanish But from eternity, this is the only one that matters. Are you saved or are you perishing? Are you reconciled to the living God or not? This is why the cross appears one way to one group and at the same time, another way to another. Now it's here at this point in verse 19 that Paul turns his attention, referring back to that passage from Isaiah chapter 29 that we read from earlier this morning. It was there in the book of Isaiah in the 8th century B.C. that God looks down upon his people and he sees their pride and he sees their arrogance. He sees confessions of faith, but he sees hearts that are far from him. He sees people who sit together in the congregation of the Lord, who sing hymns to him, who give attention to his word. Externally, they seem to be embracing the message They convince themselves that they have wisdom and insight enough already, and they do not need to listen to the Lord. They puff themselves up in pretentious wisdom and understanding. They live their life as though no one can see the things that they do in the private recesses of their heart. They go about living as though what they do in private is known to them alone. But God sees. Mankind has become so arrogant, Isaiah writes, that he has turned things upside down. And what a great picture of our utter pride and contempt toward the Lord. And at the same time, what a great picture of weakness and impotence and inability on our part. That the pot would say to the potter, this is what your job is. That the pot would say, you did not make me. You have no understanding. And this is exactly what modern man does when he thumbs his nose at God and says, I made myself. And now, all of these years later... In 1 Corinthians, Paul says that it is the cross which is God's way of doing what He said He would do in Isaiah chapter 29, exposing our foolishness, showing us our vanity, driving us outside of ourselves to see that it is only the meek, only the humble, only the poor, only those who understand that the world's criteria of greatness must be completely turned upside down. Only they are the ones who will find life. You see, our very natures, the default of our hearts, is to focus upon ourselves. And if everything is about me, then God must exist for me and everyone else must exist for me. My fundamental criterion in life is what is acceptable to me. Have you ever noticed that whenever you see a group photo... Some of you got your yearbooks this past week. You have your sports photos, your large group photos. Maybe you go to a retreat. You look at those photos and you immediately look for yourself, don't you? I hope that my eyes are open. I hope I look halfway normal. My self-interest shows that I want to be the final criterion of truth. But God destroys this notion. And so whether it's the Jews who demand signs or whether it's the Greek desire to seek wisdom behind them both, you see, as a reliance upon human ingenuity and a desire to hold God to our standard of measurement. And consider for a moment the way in which both Jew and Greek do the same thing. Verse 22, Jews demand miraculous signs. You'll recall during Jesus' earthly ministry that everything that he did in that earthly ministry can be sort of summarized as the things that he taught And the miracles that he performed. Miracles that were signs of his deity and power and redemption. And between his teaching and his miracles, which of those two drew the greatest crowds? Which of those two appealed to people's sense of awe and wonder? I mean, you can hear people talk all the time. And even though this is God in flesh, and no doubt the teaching was beyond anything we've ever heard, we would much rather go to a magic show than a lecture. In fact, there are times when the crowds gather to see miraculous signs and even Jesus' disciples egg him on to perform. This is the time to strike, Jesus. Strike now while the iron is hot, while the people are willing to do whatever you tell them to do. And yet it is in those times that Jesus separates himself from the crowd. He goes off by himself to spend time in prayer with his heavenly Father. And he insists to his disciples that they move on to the next town so that he can teach and preach the gospel. Then Jesus starts talking about the necessity of his death and resurrection. And Peter rebukes him. That's not right. We can't have a suffering Messiah. We cannot have a crucified Lord. We need a triumphant king. And Jesus replies, get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. In Matthew 12, some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law come to Jesus and they say, Teacher, we want you to perform a miraculous sign for us. Perform for us. We are the final arbiters of truth. We will decide if you are who you say you are. We are the pot. We are the clay. But we want you to put on a show for us. And Jesus replies, No sign will be given to you except the sign of Jonah, the one who spent three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. In John 6, when Jesus talks about the exclusive nature of the gospel that it is only through faith in him. He is the only way to be made right with God the Father. We read that many of the disciples that had followed him up until that point turned and left because the teaching was too hard for them to bear. And then toward the end of Jesus' public ministry, as he stands before Herod, ready to be condemned to death, we read that Herod is glad to finally be in the presence of Jesus. He had heard so many things about him, and he was hoping to see some sign, some miraculous sign done by him. But Jesus stands in silence, refusing to be Herod's puppet. Now, when you read through the Gospels, have you ever wondered to yourself, why doesn't Jesus just perform some great miraculous event? Why not just turn Herod into a newt? Why not just reduce him to a pile of rubble? Why not just do something to put all of those critics to shame and just shut their mouth once and for all? You listen to the radio. You watch television. And you hear those mocking voices. There's always some expert, isn't there, who comes on and disproves the Christian faith, mocks those who would believe in God. If God exists, why doesn't he do something to show us who he is? Why does he allow tornadoes to rip through the Midwest, destroying lives and property? You've probably talked to people like that before. They say things like this. If God exists, then why doesn't he just show himself to me? He can do anything. If he's so powerful, if he is so great, then it's not a big deal for him to do so. You remember the story that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 16 of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man is clothed in purple, in fine linen... He dines on sumptuous feasts at his table every night, while Lazarus, the poor man, sits outside of the rich man's gate, covered in sores. The dogs come and lick those sores. They both die. Lazarus is carried to the side of Abraham, the rich man to the torments of hell. And as the rich man is there in anguish, he pleads to Abraham, Please send Lazarus back to my father's house, for I have five brothers." Please send him to warn them. Such a marvelous display of power. Someone returning from the dead will certainly convince them to turn to the Lord. But Abraham replies they have Moses and they have the prophets. They have the word of God already. And if they do not listen to the word of God, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. No display of power will convince those who have already rejected that which is so clear already in God's word of truth. You see, when we demand signs, what are we after? We want power that we can control. To say, I will come to you, God, if only you do this for me first. It's just to satisfy our desires. We want to control Jesus. We want Him to be the genie in the lamp under our control rather than bowing before the sovereign Lord who has already revealed Himself in Scripture and who has, in fact, raised His Son from the dead. The most miraculous of signs has already occurred. To want more is simply to want control. This is the desire of the Jews that Paul is talking about. Ultimately, a desire to control God, to make him do my bidding for me to be in control and for me to be God rather than submit to his lordship. This is the essence of sin, and this goes all the way back to the garden when our first parents wanted to be God rather than trust God. And that, you see, fundamentally is the difference between you and God. He does not want to be you. See, the offensive nature of the cross is that you must humble yourself and come on his terms. He is not a puppet to satisfy your desires. What about the Greeks? What are they after? Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom. Well, what for them is wisdom? Well, here it's not so much about the signs, the miraculous displays of power. It's not even about the pursuit of morality that motivated many of the Jews. But the Greek is after intellectual stimulation. For him, wisdom is all about philosophy. It's just an academic pursuit. It's having those mental faculties tantalized so that he can stroke his pride and feel as though he has greater insight than another. And this can be the reason why some people come to the church today. Perhaps for some of you, you are here today, not out of a desire to bow to the lordship of Christ, but simply out of a desire to satisfy intellectual craving. And so we could put into that category not only philosophy, but education, worldly standards that Paul alludes to in verse 26, power and nobility, a person of wealth and influence who comes from the right family perhaps a temptation on your part to look around you and judge the truth claims of the gospel based upon the people who are sitting in the pews around you. Back in verse 17, Paul indicates that it was not with eloquent words, it was not with well-reasoned arguments or great rhetoric that he came to the people in Corinth. Paul was very gifted in the use of reason, but it was not the basis of reason that he proclaimed, but rather it was Christ. And think of the disciples themselves, those that Jesus called to be his followers and to be leaders within the early church. Fishermen and other unknown men with no worldly credentials. The church in Corinth, in Paul's absence, they're beginning to wonder themselves about Paul's message. They're saying, look at what the message he proclaimed produced. Look here in the church around me, we have those who are weak, we have those who are despised, we have those who lack power, we have those who don't come from the right family background. Perhaps if he had preached a more powerful gospel, then the people here among us would be different. And perhaps we reason the same way today. We think, you know, here are the world's PhDs over here. Those with all the academic credentials and accolades holding to evolutionary biology outspoken atheists and we think to ourselves wouldn't it be nice to just tip the scale in our favor to have more PhDs over here those who are credible spokesmen for the Christian faith so that when they call somebody to interview them on the radio or the television they stop calling these liberal wackos but instead call one who actually knows what he's talking about you see which philosophical school of thought has reasoned its way to the cross. There is no reasoning someone into the kingdom of God because to reject the message of the gospel is not simply an intellectual matter. But if there is foolishness, if it is foolishness that rejects the gospel, then that means that there is moral rebellion against the creator God. And so Jew and Greek, both are self-centered views. Both want God to produce credentials for us Who is the God that I can believe in? Who is the God who will put on a show for me? Who is the one who can satisfy my intellectual curiosity? But instead, if He is the God who is there, then He is the one in whose presence I must bow. I must be silent. On that day when our Lord Jesus returns at the end of the age... And His glory is on display for the entire watching world. All mouths will be silenced. All human wisdom will immediately come to an end. Imagine all philosophers who have ever lived, who have spent their entire lives speculating on the answers to those ultimate questions, that as soon as they take their final breath, they are immediately struck with the reality of their error. In a split second, their hearts are exposed as foolish. They had prided themselves in wisdom, but it is instantly gone. And so you see, it all comes back to God's grace. If it were with masterful words or flowing speech, if there were some way, if it was connected to human wisdom, or our ability, then the cross would be emptied of its power. As he says in chapter 2, verse 5, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You see, if it's all of grace, then we have nothing to boast of. We believe in the hope of the gospel not because of our intellectual abilities, not because of the abilities of those who teach us, but we are saved from our sins only because of the grace of God, not because of our morality, but because of His intruding grace into our lives. There are so many places that we could turn to in the Old Testament in which we see evidence of God's grace, divine election coming upon the lives of those who are weak, who are powerless, who are foolish in the eyes of the world. One of my favorite narratives that illustrates the power of God up against human wisdom and strength is in 2 Kings chapter 5. It is here that a man named Naaman... A commander of the Syrian army, a mighty man of valor and importance, of status, power, and wealth, is a leper. And he has a slave girl who has been captured from the land of Israel, perhaps one that he himself has captured in one of his campaigns. And it is a slave girl that comes and points him to the prophet of the Lord, where he can find cleansing from his defilement. And so Naaman gathers together literally hundreds of pounds of silver, roughly 150 pounds of gold, sets of valuable clothing, a letter from his king attesting to his value and worth, horses and chariots. And he takes all of these things in his huge entourage and he rides to the tiny house of Elisha the prophet. And Elisha doesn't even come out of his house, but sends his servant to him to tell this great man Naaman, go and wash in the Jordan River seven times. And your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. And Naaman is furious. Doesn't he know who I am? Give me a task to perform. I expected a majestic display of power which was to come down on high and cure me. Anyone can dip himself in the Jordan, and I'm not anyone. Don't you see? that it is only your pride that keeps you from receiving the grace of God offered in the cross. And so when Naaman finally got it, he humbled himself, he dipped himself in the Jordan, he received the grace of God, he was healed, and he was clean. Not just restored physically, but clean before God. And as Paul quotes in verse 31 from Jeremiah 9, the only thing left to boast about is the grace of God. Boasting in Him, delighting in Him. The only way to salvation is through the shame and weakness of the cross, that instrument of shame and torture. See, in the cross, there are two things that the Lord does for us that would have been impossible otherwise He pardons completely, and He punishes sin. He pardons completely those who believe in Christ, even though we deserve condemnation. Alistair Begg says, I may change everything about my life, but my history remains. Second, so resolve sort of to this point forward in my life to live a moral life, to be a kind person, to be loving and patient with others. But I've always got that problem of my past. Anger, lust, distrust, pride, frustration, Insecurities and all their sorts of weaknesses and failures. But it is the cross that pardons completely. And he satisfies perfect justice by executing punishment that our sins deserve. And so in the cross of Christ, we have the infinite love of God and his holiness maintained as he punishes the sin that we deserve. And just like Naaman, anyone can believe. Anyone can be saved. What are a few applications that that we can draw from this text? Well, first, be aware of the temptation in your own life to capitulate the sufficiency of Scripture, perhaps to look to philosophy, perhaps to look to secular counseling or the world's pursuits and more, because we might reason to ourselves, how could Scripture be sufficient to deal with the complexities of human life and the human psyche? Scripture alone has supreme authority and supreme insight. Someone has said, at some point, his servants have to settle the issue of whether they are prepared to be fools for Christ or will settle for being respected and approved by the world. Second application, acknowledge that you too are like the members of the early church of Corinth, tempted toward pride and toward arrogance, And the antidote you see to boastful pride and arrogance is seen in verses 26 through 31. Remember who you are when you were called. See, the irony here is that here is the church filled with those who are from this rebellious and worldly and self-indulgent lifestyle. They were nothing before they came to Christ. And then they sit in the church and then filled with their pride and arrogance look around themselves and condemn other people who are just like them. What do we need? We need to remember who we were before we were called. We were among the lowly and the despised. God chose us that there would be no more boasting any longer. You see, the Lord delights in those who delight in Him. That's what Paul references in verse 31 as he alludes to that passage from Jeremiah chapter 9. There is no higher end, you see, than boasting in the Lord and His goodness to us. Third application, delight in the paradox of the gospel that you are ordinary and yet extraordinary because of His divine election. This is love, not that we have loved Him, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. That is one who bears the wrath of God in our place the paradox that you will be marginalized in this life and yet on the day of judgment you will be openly acknowledged and acquitted. That you are insignificant and have no value as far as the world's philosophies are concerned but you have an eternal weight of glory because of your union with Christ Jesus. That you were despised by those in the world and yet you have a heavenly Father who knows you exhaustively and who loves you infinitely. And fourth, number your days aright that you may gain a heart of wisdom. In a moment, you shall be with the Lord in glory for all eternity. And all that we tend to value as a society will never matter again. And so allow eternity to intrude into the present as one who is already a treasured possession of the Lord who is already redeemed in the Lord Jesus. Now, on that day when Christ returns, you see, you will be no more resurrected in the inner man than you are already resurrected now. And so live, live, O oh Christian, as though that is true. And delight in the means that the Lord has given to you for your growth in grace. You know, there's probably nothing more foolish in the eyes of the world that you would take a couple of hours out of your Sunday morning on a Memorial Day weekend and come here and sit here and sing songs and bow your head in prayer and just sit and listen to someone talking at you. How ludicrous. How foolish. But this is life itself. His word is eternal. His wisdom is contained in the pages of Scripture, in the person and work of Jesus Christ, and our Lord is pleased to continue to use His Word to penetrate our hearts and to conform our thinking. And finally, if you are sitting here today and all you can think about is the foolishness and the absurdity of the gospel, then know this. All men are destined to die once, And after that, to face judgment. Are you going to sit around and wait for God to bow to you, to show you some miraculous sign like someone raising from the dead? Or are you going to continue to sit there just to have your intellectual itch scratched? Or will you bow before the God who is there because your days are numbered? May the Lord be pleased to take the eternal truth of His infinite word and write it upon our hearts.